listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. chapter 5. Last week we went through verse number 32. This morning we're picking up in verse number 33. What we've seen so far in the Gospel of Luke is the first two chapters give us an introduction to the life of Jesus Christ. Then chapters 3 and 4 give us an introduction to the ministry of of Jesus Christ, inclusive of John the Baptist. When we come to chapter, the end of chapter 4, Jesus talks about his kingdom and how uh, he is going to be moving forward throughout all of Judea and he's going to be assembling or building the kingdom or introducing people to the kingdom. So when we come to chapter 5, Jesus is moving through with the good news of the kingdom and we see him introducing his kingdom and calling people into his kingdom. What we're going to see today as we come to Luke 5 verse 33 is we're going to see that there are competing kingdoms. There are other kingdoms that already exist. Jesus comes pro claiming a kingdom of light and proclaiming a kingdom of life. But the kingdom of darkness and the kingdoms of death are going to be competing with the kingdom of the the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus is offering to us. And so we see that competition beginning and that competition, that conflict is going to lead all the way up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He sees it coming. God in his sovereignty, God in his providence is preparing the hearts of the Pharisees to see Jesus go to the cross, to see him crucified. And we begin to see that battle here in Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6. Just as a a phrase to kind of give us a a theme of the sermon, Jesus did not come to comply with, with death. Jesus has not come to fit into our religious systems. Jesus has not come to cooperate with the kingdoms of darkness. Jesus did not come to comply with death. He came to bring resurrection life. And that's unlike anything we've ever seen before. And so don't miss that this morning. The text unfolds uh, around three simple questions that we can um, readily identify. The first question is about the fasting of uh, Jesus and his disciples as opposed to the fasting of John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees. They come saying, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast like our disciples fast? And Jesus then says, can the attendants to the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? And then another question comes when we get into chapter 6. Why are you not doing what is lawful to do on the Sabbath? In other words, Jesus and his disciples are on their way to the next destination. They stop through at the the drive-thru, pull through to the window, uh, get their food, and then the Pharisees come up to the 15-passenger van. That's what they need if you've got 12 disciples. And they're looking in the windows saying, you can buy that Chick-fil-A sandwich, but you can't unwrap it on the Sabbath. Of course, we know that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday, so that story doesn't fit very well. And then finally, we come to the last section, verses 6 to 11. On another Sabbath, Jesus then asks a question of them. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to destroy life? 
So we see these questions that shape the text, but I want to break it down into, into two parts as we look at the text this morning and try to see what the Lord would have for us, see what Luke is trying to say to us as he speaks to Theophilus and trying to convince Theophilus of who Jesus Christ is. The first thing we want to see in verses 33 to 39 is uh, the concern about fasting. And there, there are several comparisons going on here in these verses as he closes out chapter 5. We see a comparison uh, of the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees. We see a comparison. Jesus is compared to uh, the bridegroom. We see the comparison between Christ's kingdom and the Pharisees' kingdom. Let's read that together and then kind of talk through it for a minute. Chapter 5, uh, verse number 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But, on the other hand, in contrast to yours eat and drink. Yours are partying, is what he's literally saying. Don't forget that we just came out of this huge party that was at Levi's house, right? And they're looking through the window, standing off at a distance, looking at all the, the, you know, the Lamborghinis and the Teslas pulling up and looking at all the people get out in their gaudy clothes and they're going in. These are wealthy people. These are tax collectors. And the Pharisees see Jesus reclining at table, the text says, with these tax collectors. And they're, uh, they're taken back by what they see. So now they're coming and saying, we're mourning, we're sad, we're, we're fasting and we're praying, and your disciples aren't fasting at all. They're running around, uh, it seems like, just having a great time. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The answer is no. You can't. A wedding is a time for a celebration. When the bridegroom shows up, a wedding is about to, to occur. The re redemption history is in process. The Redeemer has come. The bridegroom has come. We'll look at just a skirt by that because the text is not asking us to deal with the details of that but we'll talk about it briefly he says verse 35 uh, essentially fast forwarding or looking back to Isaiah 53 verse 8 he says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days the New Testament church found itself fasting because Jesus was taken away in crucifixion he goes to another comparison. Then he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. You'll ruin both garments if you do that. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled. You'll ruin both the wine and the wineskins. But new wine must be put in fresh wine skins and no one after drinking this is an indictment of the pharisees and no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good if you drink the old wine long enough you'll get so intoxicated and inebriated and be so fooled by it that when somebody brings new wine to you you won't even know what you're drinking that's exactly what's happening in the text Let's, let's look at that for uh, just a minute this morning. First of all, he's comparing the disciples. He's saying that the disciples of John and the Pharisees are serious. They're devout. They're sad. They're mournful. They fast. Now, we know that fasting was required one time a year, the Day of Atonement. 
But the Pharisees had broken this thing down and, and gotten it so precise that their religious system in desiring to put space between the overachievers and the, the spiritual slouches had designed a system that required truly righteous people to fast Monday and Thursday. And Jesus' disciples couldn't compare with that in any way. The, the self-righteous stirred the rule keepers to notice their outstanding performance. Look at how well we are doing. We are performing well over and against the disciples of this upstart rabbi. Could this man be the son of God? Look at what he's doing. He's partying. Look at his disciples. They're not fasting. Look at his disciples. They're not praying. Look at us. Look at his disciples. They're joyful. They've got the bridegroom with them. Look at us. We're sad. And if you're really spiritual, you're going to be really serious. You're going to be really critical. You're going to be really sad. You're going to be borderline angry if you're really spiritual. How can this new religious system have any validity when the followers of this man are not even fasting and praying? Let me just... Side note, is fasting a good thing? Yes. If fasting is done properly, it can be beneficial. I, I, I don't think, and we look at, at Matthew chapter 6, and you can look at that and you can see Jesus said, when you fast, fast this way, but don't do like the, the hypocrites do and, and make sure everybody is going to say, man, what's wrong with you? So you can say, oh, man, I'm fasting. Don't do that, he said. Don't do that. He says, uh, they will have their reward, but if you fast properly, there is benefit to fasting. Now, I, I, I may say something that's sacrilegious here, and I don't want to offend anybody. I don't think God is in heaven saying, if you don't fast, I'm not going to bless you, and if you do fast, I will bless you. But I do believe that for those who fast, there is spiritual benefit that comes along with fasting, either to take the time to set food aside and focus on something specifically, or to, to set aside food and set aside time so that you can mourn or grieve. That would be the benefit of fasting. Fasting's not a bad thing, but I don't believe fasting is meritorious. I do not believe fasting brings merit or favor or makes you self-righteous or earns you credit somehow with God so that God maybe was going to do something, but now that you're fasting, he's going to do something different. The problem with fasting in this context, again, is Matthew 16, where they, they were sad and suffering, and that's what they thought spirituality was. But Jesus' followers were not sad and suffering, therefore they could not be spiritual. The disciples of John and the Pharisees fast often and offer prayers. The disciples of Jesus are eating and drinking. They're constantly happy and partying and feasting and celebrating. They are not fasting. So we see that, that comparison between the disciples, we begin to get a picture of the Pharisees. We begin to see their attitude. We begin to see their spirit. Jesus answers their concern uh, by comparing himself to a bridegroom in verses 34 and, and 35. Jesus essentially proclaims it is wedding time in redemptive history. The bridegroom of Israel has come if you're looking at Isaiah 62 because Isaiah 62 speaks of Israel Israel being uh, the bride or if you're looking at Revelation 19.7 you understand that there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb and the church is the bride of Christ. 
He's essentially saying no one fast at a wedding. It's inappropriate. It doesn't fit. At a wedding, there is joy, there's feasting, there's laughing, there is dancing. He's saying redemption has come. It's not time to fast and to pray and to be sad and to mourn and to worry. Redemption has come. Emmanuel has come. Emmanuel means God with us. Not only is God with us, but we know that, that the Spirit of God has come to dwell within us. We also know that in John chapter 17 and verse number 3, Listen to what the text says as it relates to Jesus being with those who are his. What should it be like for us in John chapter 17 and verse number 13? Listen to what he says. He says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The disciples of Jesus should be filled with joy. One commentator said, The central comparison between the wedding festivities and Jesus' disciples lies in the joy which they possess in their master. Jesus emphasizes this with his answer to the critical question. The reason for the fundamentally different position of his disciples is that the bridegroom is with them and in his presence they experience joy. In the presence of Jesus Christ, there should be joy. We are in the presence of Jesus Christ. We're, we're, we're not a, a bunch of people that need a spiritual laxative. I'm sorry. We should have joy. We shouldn't be stuffy. We shouldn't be arrogant. We shouldn't be sad. We should have great joy because Jesus has come and we are in His presence. His presence. The attendants at the wedding can hardly be expected to fast in the presence of the bridegroom. And if the Pharisees had understood, if they had believed, if they had accepted who Jesus was, they wouldn't be fasting and praying either. They would be celebrating. I would encourage you to look at your life. I would, I would, I would take the time to look in the mirror at myself. And we need to ask ourselves, where is our joy? Where is our joy in the midst of a world that's falling apart? Where is our joy as we are living at the end of a massive cultural revolution that is going to have tremendous implications and ramifications for how we live our lives practically? Where is our joy? In the presence of Jesus, there is joy. And if there is not joy in your heart, could it be that you've Hooked yourself up to some dead religion that is joyless. Where is our joy? Certainly the bridegroom will be taken away. And in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 8, what do we do while the bridegroom is taken away? And Peter is addressing that. He's, he's clearly showing us how we should live. And in chapter 1, verse number 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is why they're not fasting. This is why they're not praying. This is why they're not sad. Because the bridegroom is with them. The bridegroom brings joy to his people. And whenever the bridegroom is there, it's time for a party. It's time for a party.
What kind of party are you having? When you go out and you intersect with people in the world who are living in darkness, who are under the curse of death, who believe that death brings life, do you dare invite them to the party? Do you dare invite them into the community where there should be joy? Because when we are gathered together, our Lord is gathered with us, and there is joy in His presence. The bridegroom brings joy, and when he is with us, it's always time for a party. Dead religion, we see it in the text, it brings jealousy, it brings competition, it brings comparison, it brings pressure, it brings unmet expectation, it brings criticism and a critical spirit. That's false religion. That's the Pharisees. They didn't understand who Jesus was. They were joyless. The third thing we see in the text is this comparing Christ's kingdom to the Pharisees' kingdom, verses 36 to 39. The first thing he uses is this, this analogy of garments. They would have understood that. He didn't come, essentially, the principle would be this. Jesus did not come to segregate from sinners or to keep one of their grumpy old fast. He was there to bring good news to people beaten to death by dead religion. Jesus said, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I'm not coming to bring my kingdom as a little patch to just patch it onto this kingdom. What happens is if you take a patch from a new garment, first thing you've done, you've ruined the new garment. Secondly, you put it on an old garment and when you put it on the old garment, the old garment has been through the washer and through the dryer so many times that hopefully it won't shrink anymore. But the new fabric hasn't shrunk yet. So what's going to happen is you've ruined the new garment by taking the patch out of the new garment and you put it on the old garment that hasn't shrunk, but the new fabric is going to shrink and it's going to ruin the old garment too. It doesn't work. You don't take this new kingdom that Christ is coming with. You don't take Jesus and his kingdom and say, hey, we're going to come join you Pharisees. We're going to come join your kingdom that somehow through your works gives you self-righteousness. No, Jesus came to bring good news to people beaten to death by dead religion. He didn't come to compromise with works righteousness. He came to offer free forgiveness through the sacrifice of himself to people who were continuously told that they needed to be better, that they needed to do more, that they needed to try harder. He wasn't coming to supplement the traditions and regulations of the Pharisees. Jesus was coming with something that to their ears was totally new, and it didn't sound like all of the legalism that the Pharisees were heaping on them. So he uses this comparison of garments. Jesus isn't coming to be a patch on what the religious system is up to. Jesus, he, secondly, he uses this comparison of wine. And, and he, he's basically saying the principle would be this. Jesus came to bring explosive joy to people who desperately need to be saved. He's looking at a people that are beaten down like sheep without a shepherd, wandering around, they're being harassed, they're being threatened by wild animals. There is this threat of them being devoured spiritually and these blind guys, these Pharisees are constantly beating them down, saying you're not good enough, that you're not righteous enough, that you're not holy enough. And, and once they get to step three, well, you forgot the other 36 steps. Jesus said, my kingdom is not like that. My kingdom is like new wine. My kingdom is a kingdom of explosive joy. 
And that joy will not be found in the old wine skins of the Pharisees. Salvation is new wine. You cannot take the new wine of the salvation that Jesus Christ is bringing by grace through faith and put it into the wineskins of the Pharisees. The Pharisees absolutely and completely don't understand that. There's something that's not legalistic. There's something that not, that's not performance-based. There's, there's a, 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 a new initiative, and it's a kingdom of new wine that's based on relationship and not ritual. Jesus Christ is coming to be the bridegroom. Jesus Christ is the lover of your soul. Jesus Christ wants to be in relationship with you. And when you come into this kingdom and you experience that relationship, it's like drinking new wine. Explosive joy to people who desperately need to be saved. So he's given us this comparison. There is this, this, this kingdom that Jesus is introducing in the context of the mess that the Pharisees have literally made of the Scriptures. And he's saying, this kingdom that I'm introducing is in no way compared to all of this gobbledygook that the Pharisees, through their interpretations and applications and imprisoning of the people of God, my kingdom is nothing like that. Please understand that. It's not a, a, a new patch on an old garment. It's not, it's not new wine in old wineskins. A wineskin was just like an animal skin, and you put wine in the new wineskin, and the wineskin would stretch because when you put the new wine in the wineskin, that, that wine is going to create these gases in the fermentation process, and it's going to expand. But you try to take that new wine and put it in an old wineskin, and that old wineskin has been stretched to capacity, and it's going to completely explode. Jesus essentially was saying to the Pharisees with that last statement there in, in Luke chapter 5 as he closes out. And, and, and it's, a sad, it's a sad commentary at, at, the, at the end of, of Luke um, chapter 5. No, notice what he says. He says, and no one after drinking old wine desires new. You Pharisees, you're just, you're just drunk on old wine. New wine is here. New wine that brings exuberant, explosive joy is here. I don't know what you think is going to make you right with God, and I don't know what you think is going to get you to heaven. But if it's anything other than Christ, it's old wine. I don't know what you think is going to take to make you happy. But if it's not Christ, it's old wine. It won't make you happy. There, there is new wine, the new wine of salvation that brings exuberant joy. So the bridegroom is there. The bridegroom brings joy. The bridegroom's kingdom is not a kingdom that's going to be patched into the pharisaical system. The bridegroom's kingdom is going to be completely different than all the stuff the Pharisees have been doing. Yet the Pharisees refuse to taste the new wine. I've seen it happen over and over again. We, we get our, our brains and our hearts locked in on things that will not give life. You've seen it as well. Religion that will not give life, but we can't be shaken from it because there's a fear and a comfort level with it, but there's no joy. There's no peace. 
Jesus has come to give us life. He's come to give us salvation. And he's standing in the midst of a kingdom of darkness and death. And the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees is as different as new wine and old wine and new wineskins and old wineskins and a new garment and an old garment. And the difference, the impact of, uh, on his disciples is completely different. There is this comparison between what the disciples of John and the Pharisees are like and what the disciples of Jesus are like. It's radically different. And so Jesus gives, this, gives us this answer to their concern about fasting. The second thing I want you to see in verses 1 to, 1 to 11 of chapter 6 is the conflict regarding the Sabbath. I want to read that and then we'll talk through it for a few minutes. On a Sabbath, and again, the Sabbath is mentioned four times in this text. It's mentioned in, chap, in verse, verse 1, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 9. So he's dealing with the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a, a big deal. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields... His disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? It was not a question. It was an accusation. You've heard those before. It was a, it was, he, he, y'all are doing something that's not lawful on the Sabbath. By the way, if they knew the law, they would know that what they were doing was not unlawful. But again, based on their interpretation of the law, based on their application of the law, and based on their desire to exalt themselves by their interpretation and application of the law, and based on their desire to be on the top of the totem pole and to make sure somebody was on the bottom of the totem pole, they kept adding restrictions and adding restrictions and adding restrictions. And so this all of a sudden becomes one of those restrictions because the Sabbath day for the really serious Jewish people had not only what Scripture said, but their interpretation and application of Scripture had 39 different rules for the Sabbath. And each of those 39 different rules for the, the Sabbath had six categories under each of the 39 rules. It was utterly ridiculous. And it did not prevent somebody. In fact, the law would allow somebody to go through a grain field, go to a drive-thru in the grain field, pick up a snack on the way to where they were going, do everything that they did, and keep going. But they were not breaking the law of God. They were breaking the law of the Pharisees. I would encourage you, be careful. Be careful of letting your interpretation and your application become equal to the authority of God and His Word. You'll find yourself in trouble if you do. There are things that you would do that I wouldn't do. Can I tell you something? I've never been to Disney World. You say, why? Well, primarily because I can't afford it. But if I had the money, I wouldn't spend the money on it. I've heard too many things about Disney World. I understand too many things about the, the mentality and the attitude and the value system and the objectives. Now, that's, that's a personal preference. If you love going to Disney World, I hope you are not offended at what I just said. Because if you're offended at what I just said, I'm going to be offended that you went. Okay? And I'm not offended that you went. I just choose not to go myself. But what a Pharisee would do is say, you know what? I don't go to Disney World. You go to Disney World? 
you, you're spiritual and you go to Disney World, I think you can be godly and go to Disney World. Please don't misinterpret. Please don't mix up. Please don't confuse what I'm saying. But what, I, what I'm trying to tell you is this. Don't look at Scripture and take something that you believe is an interpretation or an application and then go running around snubbing your nose at people who don't hold the same values based on interpretation and application as though your interpretation and application and then the rules you set up for yourself based on some legitimate principle in Scripture all of a sudden now is the thing that you stand on and think that God stands there with you. Okay? And if somebody wanted to pay for me to go to Disney World, I might go. Amen? <laughs> anyway. So Jesus is dealing with the Sabbath, and he's dealing with these, all of these interpretations, all of these applications that a lot of really spiritual people in their eyes came up with. They could say, hey, have you ever listened to this guy preach? Yeah, I listened to that guy. Well, he wrote this. Well, he wrote that? Okay, good. If that guy, I've heard him preaching, I love him, and he wrote that, then what he wrote must be right. So that's what they're doing. They're looking at these rabbis saying, this rabbi wrote this. Who would argue with that rabbi? Nobody would argue with that rabbi. I can't reason with that rabbi. I, I don't have the uh, logical powers that rabbi has. I can't do that. So therefore, I'm just going to do what the rabbi said. That's, that's, where, that's where they were in dealing with the Sabbath. So he's talking about the Sabbath. They were going through the grain fields. Why, why, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? What they were doing was lawful on the Sabbath. But Jesus comes back, and, and man, I'm telling you, left hook, right cross, uppercut. And, and maybe, you know, put his you know, left foot uh, on, the, on the right side of their head like Billy Jack. And most of you don't know who he is. Me and Lane Austin are the only ones. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He's talking about 1 Samuel 21. He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence. There was the bread of presence that was set aside. Um, and Twelve pieces of bread set on the table. And it was set aside, supposed to be in the house of God, an act of worship for a week. And then, then after a week, the priests were able to eat that bread without preservatives. Can you imagine that? David stops by one day. He's got his men with him. He's hungry, and he talks to Ahimelech. And Ahimelech, he says, Ahimelech, we're starving to death. And Ahimelech says, I, you, you know what? I know what the law says, but, but there, is a, there is a spirit behind the law that says, man, that you, need, you need to follow the law. But if somebody comes to you and they're in need, you, you don't need to have your worship so set up that you're going to neglect the need of an individual. So he goes and he grabs the bread and he brings it out and gives it to David and his men, and they eat it and go on their merry way. That's what, he's, that's what he's talking about. You can read it in 1 Samuel 21. Jesus is taking them to the Word of God and trying to show them the spirit of the law, trying to show them what is behind uh, the law. The, the, the law was not given so that those who love the law would run around behind people and try to catch them doing something wrong. The Pharisees were the Sabbath police. The Pharisees were constantly looking for Sabbath violators. Beware of listening to conversations. Beware of scouring through people's lives looking for something wrong that, that is inconsistent with your application of what the law actually says. You might be a Pharisee. You might be a Pharisee. Be careful. And so the, the Sabbath police are out there. Jesus is explaining to them what is behind the literal law. 
He said he entered the house of God, took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but for the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's a great statement. That's a great statement. Let's, let's talk about the Sabbath for a minute. The Sabbath was established in creation when God rested on the seventh day. And I'm not going to give you a, a complete systematic theology on the, on, on the Sabbath. When you look at your calendar, what divides out your week is the Sabbath, if you're not aware of that. The calendar is arranged for a recognition of the, the Sabbath. We are created in the image of God. And if God in all of his creation himself rested and we are created in his image, then we need to pay attention when Scripture mentions the Sabbath. We don't just need to look at the abuses of the Pharisees and say the Sabbath is bad. We need to look back to Scripture and understand what the Sabbath was originally for. The observance of the Sabbath is good and healthy and natural, and it leads to flourishing. The Sabbath focuses on relationship and recovery. It's a time for recalibration through worship and restful reflection on the provision and goodness of God. It's also, according to some confessional statements, a time for showing mercy to the needy. The Sabbath essentially looks forward to our full salvation in Christ. It anticipates the messianic age. It's a snapshot of life when Messiah returns. It's, it's, it's looking forward to a time of relational joy and complete and absolute restoration through resurrection. The Sabbath originated in the Garden of, well, originated in creation, but it's reiterated in the law. The Sabbath was not created to be a burden, the Sabbath was not created to be a dread. The Sabbath was created to be a joy, the Sabbath was created to be a blessing. Sabbath keeping, listen carefully, like fasting, is beneficial but not meritorious. It is beneficial but not meritorious. We see some things in the Old Testament that would speak to that and Israel, but I don't think that, and, and again, I may be just completely sacrilegious, I don't think that God's up in heaven saying, oh man, you, 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 you walked more than 3,000 feet. In Israel, if you, uh, Michael, my son, got on an elevator in Israel when he was there several years ago, and people would get on the elevator, but it was a violation of the Sabbath for them to press the button. So they'd stand there in the elevator until somebody got in that was willing to break the Sabbath and push the button. That's not, that's not the intention of the Sabbath. And if they had pushed the button, I don't think lightning would have struck. I think we need to be careful and understand that there is benefit and that there is blessing, there is spiritual benefit, there is physical benefit to Sabbath-keeping and fasting. I don't believe that God is sitting in heaven waiting to zap you if there is some violation of the Sabbath or you do not fast on the Day of Atonement. But there is blessing, there is benefit to it. How did the Pharisees desecrate the, the Sabbath? I've already mentioned that. They are the Sabbath police. They had all of these rules added to the Sabbath. And what they did through their legalism was they made the Sabbath a burden and not a blessing. They made the Sabbath all of this work that most people couldn't figure out if they tried instead of it being a time of joy for God's people to find refreshment, to find renewal, to find restoration.
David Gooding said this, the religious mind is a curious thing. It's not interested in common morality, still less in relieving human misery and affliction. It is interested in keeping rules, particularly rules which spring from its own cherished interpretation of Scripture or tradition. And of those interpretations, it will attribute the inflexible authority of God himself. Beware of thinking you've interpreted something right. Beware of having a personal application in your life. And then beware of running around and looking at everybody else that may not do it like you do and ascribing the authority of God to your personal conviction. Beware of doing that. The second thing we see, well, the, the grain field, con- I'm, I'm covering the Sabbath, I'm getting ahead of myself. The first thing we see, verses 1 to 5, is the, is the grain field controversy. We've already talked through that. I've already explained it from the text. And here's the point. The point of, of it is this. Mercy, compassion, and human need are more important than a rigid adherence to ritual and ceremony. Mercy, compassion, and human need are more important than rigid adherence to a ritual and ceremony. You see, the the bottom line is this. This incident is exposing that the Pharisees don't love God. And if if the law points to anything, and if there's anything that can sum up what the law is saying to us, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It is essentially relational, and the Pharisees didn't want it to be relational. They didn't love people. They loved their system. They loved their self-righteousness. They loved their power. Jesus closes out this section by giving this authoritative drop the mic, you know, get them to the mat, choke them out statement right here. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The phrase Son of Man is used 83 times in the New Testament. Jesus uses it 78 times, and he uses it as as a description of himself. And, And Jesus essentially is saying here in this text, he's already said he's the bridegroom, that he is the one that is coming to bring redemption to set people free. Let's celebrate. Redemptive history has now begun. Now he is saying that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is saying that he is the Son of Man. He is saying that he is fully God. No wonder the Pharisees are getting angry. Not only is he a Son of Man, he's fully God, but he is Lord of the Sabbath, and essentially he is the creator of the Sabbath. He is the creator of all things. He is the one who determines what is appropriate for the Sabbath, not the Pharisees' rituals, not their rules, not their regulations. So they're coming, trying to tell the Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of Man, what's supposed to happen on the Sabbath by their puny rules. And he's saying, hold on. First of all, we haven't broken the Sabbath. And secondly, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And you can't accuse me of breaking the Sabbath because I haven't. But they missed him completely. In fact, His proclamation of his deity and his proclamation of his lordship over the Sabbath only angered the Pharisees. We move from the grain field controversy to the man with the withered hand. Verse verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So again, we see the Sabbath again. 
And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. Now, now they're now they're uh, they're sinister. They're just looking for Jesus to do something wrong, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, "Come and stand here." And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to these Pharisees, "I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm?" to save life or to destroy it. Then after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. And everybody was happy. They were like, wow, this must be God. A man who, uh, who, who had walked around maybe his whole life, maybe he was injured in an accident, I don't know, has walked around with a withered right hand he couldn't use it, and all of a sudden, his hand is useless, and in that moment, he starts moving his fingers. A man who was not whole, a man who had an identity as a man with a withered hand, has now been made whole, has now been healed, and the Pharisees had the audacity to be filled with fury as a result of that. What, a, what, a, what an amazing thing it is to get tied up to our religion, to our misinterpretation and our misapplication of the Word of God and how it can so twist our lives. I want you to think with me about the man with the withered hand for just a minute this morning. <clears throat> what was his name? <laughs> Nobody knows. In fact, they're like, did you see that guy? What, what guy? What was his name? I don't remember his name. But the, the man with the withered hand, oh yeah, I remember him. That was his Identity, the man with the withered hand. We notice, right? Um, I, uh, every time I have an opportunity to go out with my granddaughter who's uh, special needs, and they see those braces on her legs and they see the, the wobble in her walk, they're like, what's wrong with her? You know? People are like, did who sinned? Her or her parents? And then they see me and they say, or her grandparents, you know? Because that's what people thought, right? Here's a man with a withered hand, and if something's wrong with you, it's because of sin. That's what they thought they were wrong. Perhaps he was faithful, perhaps he was kind, perhaps he was a godly man, but whatever he did, he would always carry that identity. I wondered what his name was. I, I wondered if it was William Withers, the man with the withered hand, or maybe short for Bill Withers, you know, lean on me. Maybe they called him Liam. I, I don't know what his name was, but it ended up being at the end of the day that he was identified with his brokenness. He was identified with what they thought was a curse. In this section, the Pharisees were content to leave this man in his broken state and in his identity out of their lust for Jesus to be condemned for not keeping their law. They were infuriated. They were beside 
themselves. But Jesus wanted to heal this man. He wanted to heal his body. Jesus wanted this man to have a new identity. He wanted him to have a new life. He saw where he was, and he wanted his life to be different. Let me just say some things about identity. I'll pace them through a long list. Number one, beware of trying to cover your identity with fig leaves. That happened in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve all of a sudden woke up one morning and recognized that their identity was not like it originally was, but now they're sinners and something's wrong. So they run, and rather than coming to God, rather than running to God, rather than coming out in the open and saying something is tragically wrong, what they did is they ran into to the, the woods, they grabbed some fig, leaf, fig leaves, and they covered themselves, and they walked out like everything's okay. Beware of covering our broken identity with fig leaves, hiding who you really are, self-righteousness, saying, I'm not broken. The most beautiful people are those who can find security in Christ in the face of the reality of their brokenness. That's somebody you can trust. That's somebody you can trust. Let me say that again. The most beautiful people are those who can find security in Christ and face the reality of their brokenness. Secondly, beware of trying to justify your brokenness through victimhood. Never wanting to release your brokenness. Never wanting your brokenness to be healed. Never wanting to move beyond your brokenness, but just living in, I know I'm broken, but it's not my fault. And then we spend our lives drowning in our brokenness. Thirdly, beware of letting cruel, godless People, I, I, I didn't. It's not grammatically correct. Don't let cruel, godness, godless people keep you imprisoned in your brokenness. Don't let cruel, godless people keep you imprisoned in your brokenness. There is no shortage of people that are more than willing to remind you of your failures. No shortage of people that are more than willing to remind you of your sin. No shortage of people that are more than willing to dredge up the past and constantly put it before you and say, why don't you live in that identity? A ton of leverage is to be gained. A lot of marriages, a lot of people, maybe right here today you're sitting beside somebody that will not let the past go. Because they'd rather keep somebody imprisoned in their brokenness than offer to them the grace that is found in Christ alone who can make us into new people and give us a new identity. Beware of listening to the voice of the accuser instead of the voice of the advocate regarding, regarding your brokenness. The, the accuser, man, I, I, hear it, I hear it all the time. I hear the voice of the accuser. Has anybody else ever heard the, the voice of the accuser? Has anybody else heard the accuser say you're worthless? Has anybody else heard the accuser say, hey, remember your sin? Has, have you ever walked in a room like I did this week full of preachers and all you could think about was just how messed up you were like I did? Folks, listen to me. The accuser is constantly coming at us, reminding of our failure, reminding us of our brokenness. But the advocate says, I will stand with you. You are not that person that Satan is trying to convince you that you are. But I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Get out of the graveyard. Get up out of the casket. Quit laying there and letting the advocate try to Fill your veins with it, or the, the accuser, fill your veins with embalming fluid. You're not dead. You're alive in Christ. Listen to the advocate. 
That is where our identity is found. Number five, don't ever let yourself be found guilty of accepting grace for your brokenness but applying law to everyone else. Number six, beware of losing the beauty of providence in the misery of brokenness. Beware of losing the beauty of providence in the misery of brokenness. This man walked around with a withered hand, perhaps for decades. And his hand was withered not because of his sin, and not because of his parents' sin, and not because of his grandparents' sin. His hand was withered by the providence of God so that he could be called up to stand in front of the synagogue that day and Jesus say, stretch out your hand. Boom. His hand was healed. It was the providence of God. God in his providence has brought us to a place of brokenness. Beware of losing the beauty of providence and the misery of brokenness. Seven. The true church will not be a constant reminder of your brokenness. The true church will be a constant reminder of his grace. The true church will come to us when the accuser is coming at us, and the true church will remind us of our newness of life. The true church will say that you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The true church will remind you not of the old wineskins and the old vintage wine, but of the new wineskins and the new wine that brings exuberant joy. The church, the true church will always view you according to your new identity in Christ and not on the basis of your current circumstances or situation. And that should encourage us this morning. The eighth thing in that long list, and if you get one of them, that's fine. The Pharisees had gone from curiosity to hostility. Listen to me. The Pharisees were content to use this broken man to prove a point. The Pharisees were content to use this broken man to win an argument. The Pharisees were content to exploit a broken man to malign Jesus Christ. Can I tell you something? If you're tempted or if you're in sin, you're hanging on to sin, you're, you're, you're drowning in idolatry, can I tell you that, that all of that is death? The enemy wants to exploit you. He wants to use you. He wants to keep you in darkness. He wants to make fun of you. He wants to malign you. He wants you to feel worthless. He doesn't want you to find your identity in Jesus Christ. He doesn't want you to be set free this morning. And that's what dead religion will do. It will keep us dead in our trespasses and sin. And there is no life in it. Jesus, again, in his sovereignty, knew what they were saying. Jesus, in his sovereignty, healed that man and the Pharisees were furious. I don't know how the Pharisees could be as furious as they were except that they were just drunk on old wine. They were just drunk on old wine. The text tells us but they were filled with fury. It was just, just boiling over inside. Just boiling over with fury and anger. Contempt. It owned them. 
what a terrible response to the Son of God. But when you're in darkness and when you're in death and you want to stay there and you want to keep everybody that you can in darkness and death, when light shines, you close your eyes, turn the light off. When life comes and you hear the exuberant joy that is produced by the new wine of salvation, think, what's wrong with those people? What's wrong with those people? Why, do they, why are they singing so loud? Why, why, are they, why are they raising their hands? Maybe, maybe, they're just, maybe they're just filled with exuberant joy because they've come out of death to life and out of darkness into light and maybe they've tasted some wine that you haven't tasted. Some concluding thoughts. In his presence, there is joy. In his presence, there is a party. I love the story of the prodigal son. I listened to a song about it this morning. I love the story of the prodigal son because the prodigal son went home and the father said, I'm going to put a robe on you. I'm going to put a ring on you. I'm going to kill the fatted calf and we're going to throw a party. What a beautiful party. Come home to the Father. Come home to the presence of Jesus. A party awaits. A new identity awaits. In the presence of Jesus, there is nourishment and rest. He has already paid for it. He has already provided it. Come and rest in God's Sabbath for us. In the presence of Jesus, there is healing and hope. Whatever, whatever you think is going on in you today, our Lord brings healing and wholeness. He is the bridegroom sent from heaven to love his people with an everlasting, nurturing, healing, secure love. He is the ultimate Sabbath and ultimate rest. And he can promise that to us because he is the Son of Man, very God of God. And he is not only Lord of the Sabbath and Creator, but he is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the healer. And the greatest malady that we suffer from that needs healing is our sin. Your greatest need is healing from sin. And I would ask you today to stretch out your hand in faith. You are dead in trespasses and sins. Surrender your dead, lifeless corpse to Him. And He will breathe into your lungs the breath of His Spirit who will give you life and make you completely new today. I would also say by way of warning, beware of your personal pet standards that you use to exalt yourself and judge others. Ask God to convict you. I need to ask Him to convict me. It's easy, it's easy to just pick stuff out and point stuff out. Don't miss the party. A low view of the incarnation, a low view of the resurrection, a low view of the consummation will mire you in the misery of the Pharisees. And then don't you dare misrepresent the kingdom of joy and life. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Do you hear me? I'm begging you. Don't dare misrepresent this kingdom that has come. It's a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of joy. It's a kingdom of life. It's a kingdom of light. 
and we will walk out of here today into a dead, dark, cold, hurting, broken world. Do not dare walk out these doors and misrepresent this kingdom to them. Let us take light to darkness. Let us take life to death. Let us take joy to sadness. Jesus was under severe attack, obviously. When you got people hiding out in grain fields and following you through the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A to see if you're going to open the chicken sandwich or not, peeping through the windows on the van, he was constantly under attack. And Jesus' response was, I've come to bring joy. We should be a kingdom of joy, and we should take joy to the world.